Good morning. How's everybody doing today? It's a good day. It's a beautiful day. It's an exciting day. First communion. We have a lot of uh, guests from out of town that mean a lot to me. Uh, today we have um, my friend Carla, who came all the way from Virginia, who was like a mom to me while I was away at college. Um, she and her friend Bonnie, right there. Say hi, Carla. I say hi to Carla. Max and Annie Carell. Max is one of our pastors up at, in Bloomington at Trinity. Um, Ben's parents are here. So it's just a sweet day uh, to be able to celebrate our first communion as a church. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Here's today's passage. You ready for it? Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. All right, let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you with grateful hearts, grateful for the privilege we've had of meeting together for services now for just over a year, grateful for the privilege of joining hands in membership and for those among us who have been baptized, grateful that this morning we get to come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper for the first time as a church body. In the midst of our gratitude, many of us are also carrying sorrows and heavy burdens, the weight of our sins threaten to drown us. Sickness and suffering and our families burden us. Would you draw near to us this morning? Would you reveal to us yourself in the face of your son, Jesus? Would you open our eyes as we study your word? Would you give us tender and humble hearts before you so that we can see and learn and grow? Help us to see our sin. Help us to turn from it. Help us to see Jesus and to turn to him. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is the third week in our study, Who is Jesus? Y'all uh, see this cool sign out here just in this hallway? Be sure you see it before you go. The wife put it up for us. Great big sign. It was orange. Who is Jesus? Sundays, 10 a.m. here at the Y. So that's pretty cool. Third week studying who is Jesus. So who is Jesus? It's the most important question anyone can ask, right? It's a question that everyone must grapple with if they're honest, if they're a serious person. You cannot look at what Jesus has done in the world over the last 2,000 years and not have to grapple with the question, who is Jesus? Why? Why are people on the other side of the world worshiping this man in a cornfield on a previously undiscovered continent, why is Jesus' name and influence everywhere? Why? You have to ask that question if you're a serious person. It's the most important question you can ask. So far, we've tried to answer that question. How have we tried to do that? Well, first, a lot of people, if you ask them who Jesus is, they're going to say, well, he was a good person or he was a good teacher or something like that, right? Right? And we said, that's not an option that he's left open to us. He is not just a good person or just a good teacher. He is either a madman or he is exactly who he said he is because he said he was God. And somebody who says he's God is not a good person or a good teacher unless what? Unless it's true. Unless it's true. And he is God. And that changes everything. Everything. That means everything he did and said matters. 
That means we orient our lives around him because he is God. Then we had our second answer. He is also, though, man. He became man, not in a pretend way, but in a real way, right? Not like Superman putting on Clark Kent glasses and being a fake man, but if you cut him, he bled. He lived a normal life. He was born like us. He was a kid like us. He grew up like us. He had a family. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired like us. When he was hungry, he ate. When he was thirsty, he drank. When he was tired, he, he slept. He went away. He had a family with siblings. He worked with his hands. He suffered just like us. He was lied about. He was betrayed. He was lonely. He was sad. He cried. He got angry. He was joyful. He made jokes. He left his mom and his disciples and friends like Lazarus, real people. He loved children. And that means there's nothing in this life that we can walk through. No pain, no suffering, no temptation that he doesn't understand, that he can't relate to, that he can't look at and say, I have been there, I get it, I sympathize. And that's important because in Jesus, we have a God that we can come to. So Jesus was a man and not the kind of man that we see pictures of, not a bearded woman with a halo, right? but a real flesh and blood man, fully God and fully man, two natures united in one person, Jesus Christ. Today, I want to do two things. First, I just want to ask why, before we go any farther, why did the eternal Son of God have to become a man? Why did he have to take on, why, was he, why did he have to be born as, we established that he did. I want to ask Why? Why did he have to be born as a baby? Why did he have to live as a man? I'll go ahead and tell you the answer, but I'll explain it later. The answer is God had work to do that could only be done by a man, but only if that man was also God. Okay, hold on to that. Then after we've answered that question, I'm going to come back and focus on one aspect of the work that he had to do, which was be our prophet not just a prophet, but the prophet, okay? So part one, why did God have to become a man? In order to understand that, we have to zoom way out. We have to go way back, back to the Garden of Eden, okay? Genesis chapter one, beginning in verse 26, says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Later in Genesis chapter 2, we get a fuller picture of how God did it. How did God make man? Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man, in Hebrew the word Adam, of dust from the ground. In Hebrew, 
Adama. Adam, Adama. Tit, Adam, from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, or spirit of life. And the man became a living creature. Okay, the first man, Adam, unique of all of God's creation. Unique. Why? Why is he unique? What makes him unique? God himself breathed life into him. He is made in God's image, right? What does it mean for him to be made in God's image? What about the angels? Are they made in God's image? What makes us different? Well, Adam has a soul, an eternal soul. God breathed life into him. And Adam's also made out of dust. Both. Adam's unique. We're unique of all God's creation because we are made of the earth like everything else that you see, like your cat, like your dog. And we also have eternal souls like the angels. This made man uniquely positioned between heaven and earth, right in the middle, both of heaven and of the earth. Do you understand that? You see that? The heavenly host, the angels, they occupy one realm of existence exclusively, the spiritual. Your cats and your dogs and the cows and the birds, they operate exclusively of the earth, and we are both, right in the middle. Man sits uniquely between heaven and earth. That makes man a mediator. When you think of the word mediator, what do you think of? Like if you're going to give a definition, like if you think mediator, what do you think? Somebody maybe who stands in for like a dispute. Like if you've got a fight, you need to go to a mediator. He's going to stand between two people who are fighting, right? Okay. And that's true of Jesus. I heard somebody maybe whisper Jesus when you hear the word mediator. Jesus, we'll talk about this in a minute, stands between two fighting entities. But they weren't fighting at first. They were in harmony. But man was still a mediator. So in a more simple sense, what is a mediator? It's just a go-between, okay? A go-between. From heaven to uh, earth, from earth to heaven, and from heaven's rule over the earth, okay? As a mediator, man had three responsibilities. To be a prophet, a priest, and a king. A prophet First and foremost is a go-between between God and the world. He represents God and reveals his word to the world. Okay? Ian, stand up. Come here. Oh, we got two Ians in the house. We're this close, it looks like, to having two Barts in the house, too. Okay. All right. Let's pretend this platform is heaven. Okay? And just don't think about what I'm trying to represent up here, okay? Because then it'll be messed up. All right. And Mr. Nathan, all the way at the back, at the sound booth, he represents Earth. Okay? I want you to go tell Mr. Nathan 
that I am a very handsome man and I deserve all the money in his wallet. Hustle. Now, Ian is taking a message, a very accurate one, from here to there. He is being my prophet. Okay? This is what a prophet does. He represents, take me out of it for a second. Okay? He represents the character of God and the will of God to the world. Okay, Ian, come back here. Did you do what you were supposed to do? (laughs) You bring all that money. Come on. Now, Now, Ian is representing earth before heaven. That's the work of a priest. Okay? That's it? Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> okay, I'm sending you back, but here is a, a weapon. You go tell him to do what's right or else. <laughs> and now what's Ian doing? Uh, he's being a king. He's being a king. He's got a pen, which is mightier than a sword. That was not on purpose, but it's a good joke. Come on back, Ian. All right, good job. I don't want to bankrupt Mr. Nathan, so you take that back to him. That's the work of a mediator, okay? A prophet represents God to the world, his character and his will. A priest stands between and represents the world before God. A king bears God's authority and exercises God's dominion on God's behalf under God's rule and blessing. That's why he went back with the pen, with the sword. Now do what God says or else, okay? This is what Adam was. This is what we are meant to be. We're meant to be the image of God before all of creation, mediators between heaven and earth, unique. God placed us in a garden that he made. He told us to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it, to turn the whole cosmos into the garden city of God. That is what we were made for. Then something happened. Satan, the dragon, the great serpent, envious, jealous, full of cunning, came to Eve, Adam's wife, and tempted her. And he convinced Adam and Eve to hand over their crowns, to hand over their position between heaven and earth. Convince them to disobey God and eat of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man fell from grace, from life, from his lofty position as God's mediator between heaven and earth. And there was a great split, a great divide between heaven and earth a divorce, two kingdoms now at war with one another. Satan led a coup. And that's why Satan is referred to in Scripture as the God of this world. Because Adam handed his crown 
and the keys to the kingdom over to the devil. That's what happened. Man was no longer fit to represent God to the world or the world to God because he handed the kingdom over. And what Adam and Eve did that day, they could not undo. What they lost, they could not get back. There was no going back to that original state. Sin entered the world and death through sin. And all of creation fell with Adam. It's under God's curse. Thorns and thistles. But God had a plan and a purpose. One he designed before the foundation of the world, before the fall ever happened. And so the day that Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God made a promise that there would be a savior. There would be someone who was worthy to come and crush the head of the serpent and take back what was rightfully his. He would undo what Adam did. He would reverse the curse. And God began to work out that redemption in history. He raised up men who were pictures of that Messiah, that Savior, that mediator to come. Prophets, priests, and kings. Some of them were all at once. Abraham was a prophet, a priest, and a king. Melchizedek, weird dude in scripture, all three. Job, Noah, all three. Moses, kind of all three. But then prophets and priests and kings. All of them meant to show us exactly what we need. Every lowercase priest was meant to show us that we needed a great high priest that could stand before God on our behalf. Every lowercase prophet showed us what, that, what we, mm, that what we needed was not just a man to deliver God's word to us, but we needed the eternal word itself. Every lowercase king showed us that we needed the one true king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We needed God to do for us the work that could only be done by a man, but no man could do it. No man was worthy. No man could overcome and undo what had been done unless that man were also God. Enter Jesus Christ, God and man in one person. He came to us as the high king of heaven and he came to reclaim this world and to establish his kingdom, the reign of heaven on earth. He came to establish himself as the king of kings and as the Lord of lords. He came as the eternal word of God to be the prophet, God's living word to us. He came as our great high priest to live a perfect life and to sacrifice himself on our behalf so that he could represent us before God because we can't. We can't come into God's presence. God is holy. We need somebody to stand between us and God and represent us on our behalf. He came to do it all. As our prophet, he reveals to us the Father and his law and convicts us of our sin. Ian running back to Nathan to tell him how handsome I am and to, right? That's prophet. As our priest, he stands in God's presence on our behalf, bearing our sins and covering us in his own righteousness. As our king, he commands and empowers us to live holy lives in obedience to his word in every part of our lives. 
Nothing is off limits to God. He is the mediator between God and man. He is our Savior, our Messiah. That's why Colossians 1 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, listen, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. According to Ephesians 1.10, this was God's plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I'm just quoting scripture. So as our savior, Jesus fulfills all three parts of what it means to be a mediator between heaven and earth. He is the one true prophet. He is the great high priest and he is the king of kings and Lord of lords. Got it? All right. So for the remainder of our time together this morning, we're going to ask what it means for Jesus to fill the office of prophet. Next week, we'll talk about what it means for him to be our priest. And the week after that, we'll talk about what it means for him to be our king. Okay? So prophet. When you think of prophet, what do you think of? What do you think of when you think of a prophet? When you think of what a prophet does, what do you think? Predicting the future, right? That's what we tend to think of. Someone who can tell the future. Or maybe somebody who has something very special to say to you specifically. Here's the problem. It's a secret. You ready? Those are pagan ideas. They come from paganism. Fortune tellers and soothsayers are pagan things. Oracles. That's pagan idolatry. It's not a biblical prophet. A biblical prophet is someone who reveals God's character and God's will. That's the work of a prophet. That's the first work of a prophet. Occasionally, especially if he was dealing with a king who had a representative responsibility, he'll also tell you that that king thinks about the future and what's going to happen because he's revealing that part of God's will to the king. But first and foremost, the prophet's job is to represent God's character and God's will. He is a communicator. He is a teacher. He is a preacher of righteousness. That means the most basic and simple work of the prophet in Scripture is actually simply to apply God's law to God's people. And if you read the prophets, that's what they're doing. They're taking the Ten Commandments and they're applying it to God's people. Prophets would speak God's word on God's behalf. They'd reveal his will. They'd call out the sins of the people. In particular, they'd call out the sins of the priests and the kings, the authorities. They would speak, thus says the Lord. They would do deeds of miraculous power that authenticated that they were from God. 
They would engage in spiritual warfare against principalities and powers of this world. Think of Moses and Elijah and Elisha. Think of the miracles that they performed that authenticated them as prophets. Think of Moses engaged with Pharaoh or Elijah and Elisha engaged with unseen armies of heavenly hosts. We don't have time to go and read all of those passages, but they're there, okay? Now, let's look at the life of Jesus. Jesus was heralded by John the Baptist. He was baptized and anointed both prophet, priest, and king. He went into the wilderness and did battle with Satan where he faced three temptations, the same that Adam and Eve faced. We talked about that last week. And he conquered them all by quoting scripture. When he came out of his 40 days of fasting and battle with Satan, he began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the kingdom of heaven has come to earth. It is here. And Jesus has come to dethrone the God of this world and to take it all back. He went out through the synagogues, preaching and teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. Matthew 4 says he healed the sick. He cast out demons. He was performing miracles greater than Moses or Elijah or Elisha. And that brings us to the passage that I quoted at the start of our sermon today. Just as when Moses ascended the mountain to receive God's law and give it to the people, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on a mountain. But there was a difference. Moses went up to visit with God and to wait for God to give him a word. Jesus went up on the mountain and he, mountain and he sat down and he spoke the word of God because he spoke as God. And when he spoke, he did not say, thus says the Lord. He said, truly, I say to you, I tell you the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you. He was not a prophet like any prophet the world had ever known. And everywhere he went, the people were amazed. They said, no one ever spoke like this man with authority. Because he wasn't just a prophet. He certainly wasn't like their scribes and Pharisees. The prophet speaks with authority, with the authority of God. But he wasn't just a prophet. He was the prophet. And he didn't just proclaim God's word. He is the eternal word of God himself. The word made flesh. Everything that came before was just pictures, types, shadows of the word that was to come. Moses, the prophet, led God's people out of Egypt in the great Exodus, right? There's a book of the Bible about it. It's called Exodus. Thanks. Okay, do the work for just a minute of rebooting the Exodus in your brain. Maybe some of you are familiar. Maybe some of you don't know or don't, aren't as familiar. What happened? Moses went down to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, right? Pharaoh, kind of symbolic in like real life, right? Kind of a picture of something. Can you picture Pharaoh in your head? What does Pharaoh look like? He looks like a snake. He looks like a snake on purpose. 
He has this big headdress that makes him look like a cobra, right? He has a crown, and on the front of the crown, coming off the top, is a snake, right? It's pretty obvious, heavy-handed imagery written into history. He is a snake king holding God's people captive and ruling over them. Moses comes, says, let my people go. He says, how about no? Ten plagues later, including the death of the firstborn sons and the Passover, right? Remember all the things, blood of the lamb over the door. God's people leave. They cross over the Red Sea. This is the Exodus. The Exodus. A tiny picture of a much bigger thing. A tiny picture of a much bigger thing. In Luke 9, this amazing thing happens. Jesus is going to go up on a mountain and pray. He's going to take Peter, James, and John with him three of his closest disciples. He's going to get up there and he's going to pray and they're all going to fall asleep. And as he's praying, his face is transformed and his clothes become dazzling white and everything gets kind of crazy and two people appear there and Peter and John, everybody wakes up and it's Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus And Peter, you remember, Peter's like, whoa, what in the world? He's like, "Uh, we should make tents for Moses and Elijah, I guess. And a voice speaks out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Wouldn't it be interesting to know what Jesus and Moses, the great prophet, and Elijah, the prophet we're talking about? Wouldn't it be interesting to know that? Anybody looking at it? Alex, you looking at it? Oh, it's still Matthew 5. All right. It actually tells us. It tells us what they were talking about. This is what it says. You ready? They spoke of his departure, Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's my translation. Y'all know what the Greek word for departure is? It's Exodus. It's Exodus. They spoke of his Exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Moses' Exodus was a tiny picture of a much bigger thing. Jesus came as the prophet to lead us out of bondage and captivity to sin and Satan. He came to reveal the Father to us. He came to reveal the word of God because he is the first word of God and he is the last word of God. He is the final word itself. You ever wonder why we don't have any more books of the Bible? Why we don't need any more? Why we don't need any ongoing continuing revelation? which we don't, by the way, because Jesus is it. Hebrews chapter one, verse one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Don't need him. Got it all. Jesus came. The final word. Okay. So that's all big and cosmic. Super cool. Beautiful. What does it mean for us today right now? Prophetic ministry of Jesus has not stopped. It does continue through the ministry of his word. Revealing to us God the Father in all of his holiness. Convicting us of our sin and our need for a savior. That's what the right preaching of the word is, is the continuing prophetic ministry of Jesus to us. When you read the Bible or sit under the preaching of the word and are convicted of your sin, it's the prophetic ministry of Jesus. Convicts us of our sin, our need for a savior, points us to our need for a high priest and a king to lead us. Many churches today have lost the prophetic ministry of Jesus. They refuse to acknowledge the prophetic ministry of Jesus. They do that by substituting false prophets, fortune tellers, soothsayers, and oracles for the prophetic ministry of Jesus. It's not a coincidence that many churches that Think that, they fo- think that they understand prophecy and focus on prophecy, actually give up large portions of God's word. They have to. Because they put themselves in the prophetic place of Jesus Christ and his word. They're out, just like old school pagans, looking for signs, reading bones and tea leaves, grasping for comfort and control that they simply refuse to find in God's word. And that's why they're compromised on the important issues of our day. It's a cover. Another way that churches do this, and we could be tempted to do this, is by focusing on a cheap grace that loses the gospel call to obedience. Prophets call for obedience, especially at the hardest places. Think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what I, I read, right? The beginning to Jesus going up and delivering the Sermon on the Mount, which we worked through a year ago, right? What did Jesus talk about in the Sermon on the Mount? What did Jesus not talk about in the Sermon on the Mount? Sex, anger, money, divorce, idolatry, worry, revenge, Self-righteousness, hypocrisy, prayer, generosity, heaven and hell, all in one sermon. There are churches that exist to be places you can go and never hear one of those things preached on in one sermon. And if they are mentioned, it's always in the context of grace, grace. Not obedience, not power to change, not repentance, grace and only grace, which means they lose grace by making it cheap. Grace is free, but it is never cheap. And so then what happens? 
They continue to lose the prophetic ministry of Jesus because they end up healing wounds lightly when sin is real and hard and unavoidable. You have real sin, you have real weight, it's unavoidable, you can't escape it. I have nothing to offer you except grace. Jesus has already forgiven you. You don't need to feel any guilt and shame. You don't need to repent. Everything's okay. I have an unspoken agreement between you that I will not call you on your sin if you will not call me on mine. That's what false shepherds do. They have seared consciences. And so if you come to them with an actual afflicted conscience, they have nothing to offer you. It's like the Pharisees. Judas comes to them with an afflicted conscience after he's betrayed Jesus. And they say, your blood's on your own head, dude. That's what ministers of cheap grace do. This is why Jesus' ministry was so potent and powerful. Because we all know that everything is not okay. We all know it. We all feel it. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is just telling us what we already know. Deep down in our consciences, that anger is sin. And people have tried to heal it lightly and say, well, unless you've actually hurt somebody, it's not sin. But we know different. That lust is actually sin before a holy God. And your, your preachers are out there telling you, well, if you didn't commit adultery, it's, you know, it's not that bad. It's a disgrace. And Jesus says, no. It's sin before a holy God. We know that, right? We feel that. That's all Jesus did was say, yes, God is in fact holy. Your conscience is in fact right. And isn't that a relief to just hear the truth? That weight you feel for your sin is real because God condemns that sin with you. And if God sent someone to tell you that, then what? Then there must be hope. There must be hope. He would not have sent someone to tell you that if there wasn't hope. You would just be dead in hell. But there's hope. But there's not hope if you don't know it and can't feel it and are told to harden your heart and callous your conscience. No, there's hope for those who feel it and feel the need to repent and to change. And if a prophet comes to you and says, no, that sin is real, it's because God has sent them. Because there's also hope for forgiveness. And there's also hope for change. That's what we need. The liars who say grace, who say it's okay, what they're actually saying is there is no hope. There's no hope for you. You can't change. What you need is to sprinkle grace on everything and just sort of like manage. It's a lie. Jesus is a prophet. He speaks and ministers God's word to us himself. And because he does, there is hope. Because he is a prophet who is also a priest. And that means there is conviction of sin and there is forgiveness. And he is a priest who is also a king. And that means there's not just forgiveness, but there is power to change. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks.